to welcome all of you here for this very special event. As part of our commitment to educational excellence and critical thinking and to fostering learning and talent development of our students and our entire campus, Loyola has had a long tradition of inviting speakers who challenge the status quo and stimulate discourse and analysis of significant social issues and ideas, and whose visits become an important part of our collective intellectual experience. Slavoj Zizak, who has been described as one of the most formidably brilliant political philosophers and cultural critics of our times, is that kind of guest speaker. We have some late-breaking news. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame has just named Elvis the Zizek of Rock and Roll. Okay. Uh, to me, the, there's only one real question to uh, confront in this introduction, which is why Slavoj Zizek should be here at this particular moment, why it's so important, why I thought it was so important that he be here, and that when history is retrospectively written, that this moment will be an important moment. Uh, I think there are two reasons. Well, one is, uh, I think he has done more than anyone to help us understand the problem of fetishistic disavowal, uh, as he repeats uh, often, the concept of uh, I know very well, but nevertheless. I, I, I know, but I act as if I don't know. In a certain sense, New Orleans is the symbol of fetishistic disavowal. Uh, we are the place who knew for years what was to come, the disaster that was coming. The people acted as if it was not coming. Even after we had the disaster that occurred, which was far uh, less significant than the one we're still facing, uh, President Bush could say no one could foresee the breaching of the levees. So I think in a sense we are the symbol of that disorder in a rather unique way. Uh, Slavoj wrote an article about New Orleans that I love very much, uh, The Subject Supposed to Loot and Rape, which was about uh, fantasies about New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. It's a very interesting title. Of course, it comes from the, the subject supposed to know, but the, there are two real meanings of subject supposed. Uh, on the one hand, we have the subject that is supposed. This is supposed to have happened in New Orleans. But the other meaning is the supposed subject as opposed to the object. Who is it that loots? Who is it that rapes? Who is the victim? Who is the perpetrator? Which brings you to the other reason why I think it's so important that he's here, and that he speak about violence. Who is the victim of violence? Who is the perpetrator of violence? In a certain sense, we are the symbol of violence. We have had the, the highest murder rate in the country. We have had rampant crime. That's the visible violence. But many people don't realize that the underlying violence is the violence of being the incarceration capital of the world. daily violence in OPP and other prisons of this state. Who is the victim of violence? That's the question. In a certain sense, we embody the concept that Savoy talks about, the part of no part. People ask, are we Americans? 
In a certain sense, we're the bad conscience of America. We're the part that is not part. And in a certain sense, that makes us the universal part, as he pointed out. So I'm hoping that, as a result of his presentation, we'll begin to understand the nature of violence and the nature of our place in a system of violence. So it's with great pleasure and honor that I introduce Slavojicic. Liberal elite. 
this has to be done. He also embodies for me, in a way, the limitation of American democracy, not that ours is better in Europe. In the sense that uh, a, a simple liberal criticism of Huey Long is too short. The tragedy is that only a guy like Huey Long was able to do it, what had to be done. Okay, so now be prepared nonetheless for some theory. Since we are here at Loyola University, and since, although I'm an atheist, I define myself as a Christian atheist, uh, I would uh, like to begin in a very religious way, but sincerely, by a quote from Paul in Ephesians 6, 12. He provided, I think, one of the first perfect definitions of critique of ideology. Maybe some of you know the quote. Here is the literal quote, okay, literal, official translation. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against leaders, against authorities, against the world rulers, the Greek term cosmocratoras, the world rulers of this darkness, against the wonderful expression, spiritual wickedness in the heavens. You see, it's a wonderful expression. It's not up in heaven there is purity, the common people are dirty. No, wickedness is up there in heaven. Or to translate Paul into today's language, our struggle is not against concrete corrupted individuals, but against those in power in general, against their authority, against the global order and the ideological mystification which sustains it. That's what Paul really meant. <laughs> so what I want to do based on this is just to go on practicing the old half-forgotten art of the critique of ideology. When then are we in ideology? When we read an ideological proclamation, whichever statement, American patriotism, socialism, democracy, we are well aware that this is not how real people experience it. In order to pass from abstract propositions to people's real lives, we have to add to the abstract propositions the unfathomable density of a life-world context. And I claim ideology are not abstract propositions in themselves, freedom, democracy, whatever. Ideology is this very density of a symbolic network, which I use the term here in the Kantian sense, schematizes these abstract propositions in the sense of renders them livable, provides the background for the way we concretely understand them. Take military ideology, it becomes livable, officially it's discipline, struggle for your country, and so on. But again, it becomes livable only against the background of the obscene, unwritten rules and rituals, marching chants, bragging, sexual innuendos, in which it is embedded. For me, when I was young, I served in my country, ex-Yugoslavia, the army, and this was for me almost the moment of formation of my insights, where to be frank, I'm a kind of a, what you call, control freak, freak obsessional neurotic, almost a fascist character. I like order efficiency. So quite openly, I was glad to go to the army. But then came the disappointment of my life. Army is not that. 
nothing functioned, it was all one big obscenity, improvisation, and so on and so on. And it took me some time to get it that this was not any kind of subversive resistance. That's how power functions. What appears to be a secret resistance to power, all the obscenities, dirty clothes, and so on and so on, is the way power is sustained. Which is why my first thesis, if there is an ideological experience at its purest, it is at the moment when we adopt the attitude of wise ironic distance and laugh at the follies we are ready to believe. You know, when you say, no bullshit, cut the crap, let's go to how things really are. Be careful, when someone uses that language, it means you will get ideology at its purest. <laughs> I can even give you an example. You know popular philosopher Harry Frankfurt who wrote the book uh, on bullshit. You remember it was a mega bestseller, short essay. Uh, I immediately was suspicious. And my suspicion was well justified because I read an interview with Frankfurt. Probably he didn't dare to do this here about two years ago in a German philosophical journal where they asked him, okay, but give me an example. Do you have an example of today in the United States of a politician who is not bullshitting? He said, John McCain. <laughs> <laughs> here is the PR. So again, uh, what is ideology? During a public debate that I had with uh, a person whom I don't especially like, Bernard-Henri Levy, the French new philosopher, at New York Public Library, something interesting happened. First, he made a pathetic case for liberal tolerance. Something like, would you not like to live in a society where you can make fun of the predominant religion without the fear of being killed for it, where women are free to dress the way they like and choose the partner as a partner to men they love and so on and so on. And I made, I must say, a similar pathetic case for communism. <laughs> With a growing food crisis, ecological crisis, and so on and so on. Is there not a need to find a new way of collective action which radically differs from market as well as from state administration? The irony was that when we both stated our case in these abstract terms, we both couldn't but agree with each other. I said, what should I say? No, I want women to be oppressed and submitted to kill. Of course, I want that. And even he said, oh, if this is communism, then I am a communist, and so on. This means that we were in ideology. You got it? Because we obliterated this dense background, as it were, background noise, which, on account of which, when you say today things like he said, it's not just what you get. It's the whole set of unwritten rules which provide a very specific, concrete meaning of what you are saying. I don't want to lose your time here, but I've elaborated this in some of my last books, I think especially in uh, violence. This is a phenomenon, namely, which immensely fascinates me. How, what a complex phenomenon social rules, norms are. Why? Rules, norms are not only simply norms which tell you how to act for reasons which can be nicely developed in psychoanalytic theory norms are never consistent whenever you want to become part of a certain collective you discover that there are some written or unwritten whatever rules regulating 
the interaction of people who are in. But then you soon discover something else, that it's not only explicit rules which matter. What matters even more are a kind of a meta, uh, 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 higher level rules, rules which tell you how to deal with the explicit rules. For example, often things are officially prohibited, but the true message between the lines is do it if you are not an idiot. You know, like in sexuality, in some countries, even at the level of criminal. For example, it, it can be nicely demonstrated that the entire Soviet Union functioned only through smuggling to black market and so on, so the official rules had to be violated. And if you follow the explicit rules, you were simply an idiot. You didn't get it. Uh, but a much more interesting example is the opposite one. It's not that the law or the rules prohibit something, but between the lines the message is do it. It's when you are allowed, solicited even, to do something on condition that you don't really do it. You know, like you are given a free choice on condition that you make the right choice, as it were. And this is another fascinating topic. I think this is the fundamental, maybe zero-level ideological mechanism to give you a choice on condition that, uh, that uh, the choice is free. In one of my early books, so I hope you don't know the example, I quote an example precisely from the time when I was in the Yugoslav army, which is very simple, even stupid, but it's wonderful how purely clinical this example is. I don't know how it is in your army, but in probably in most armies it is as it was in Yugoslav army where I served, where after the, the beginning, the first drill, two, three weeks, you swear the oath. You know, it's the solemn procedure, all the soldiers are gathered, and then you do the usual bullshit. I am ready to do everything up to dying for my country, and so on and so on. Then after, all of us pronouncing these words in public, each of us then had to sign the oath. And then a friend of mine, I wouldn't dare to do it, but he did it. He was one of my heroes. Uh, when it came to signing the oath, he said, no, I will not sign the oath. Then the officer asked him, tell him, but are you crazy? You will be arrested. You must sign it. The guy said, wait a minute. Give me a clear answer. Am I obliged? Are you ordering me to sign it or not? And you know, it was a magic moment where a crack in ideological entities appeared. Because the, so the, the officer told him, no, are you crazy? This is an oath. This is your free act. Then the guy said, no, but if it's a free act, I will not do it. Then it does, it's an order and I will do it. And then a miracle happened. I have a photocopy of this. Uh, the officer wrote him on a piece of paper an order to freely sign. <laughs> this, is, this is how it functions. Okay, it's never as simple as that. I'm well aware of it. But what I'm saying is that if you want to understand and ideology. You know, always look at these ambiguities. It's never what it says, it's how you relate to what it says. Where can you feel this gap at its purest? Precisely in what people usually celebrate as spontaneous outbursts. For example, you are in a formal debate, then you explode, you get bored, so you do whatever. Let's say you start swearing, dirty words, and so on. 
Again, if you look closely at how this functions, it has nothing to do with any kind of spontaneous explosion or whatever. Precisely these allegedly spontaneous outbursts are the most codified part of it. You must learn them. You become part of a civilization, collective, whatever. Precisely when you learn these carnivalesque moments of how to, how to violate the explicit rules. Let me take not only swearing, but two, three other examples. For example, drinking hard alcohol or smoking. I claim there is nothing originally, if you smoke and if you remember how you learned to smoke, it's usually first when you were, I don't know, in your early teens, in some initiatic group where somebody offers you, are you a man enough? If you are a man, try it. You try it, and I can guarantee you, if you are normal, if you are an alien, it's different. <laughs> but there are aliens. I know two aliens in the United States. Pat, you, Pat, no, Pat, you can, and still human. Uh, Pat Robertson is an alien. <laughs> <laughs> all in politicians. Two of them are my aliens, but that's another question. Direction, uh, reaction, <laughs> you started to cough, you didn't like it. Smoking is inherently an unpleasant experience. But then you were told, but wait a minute, that's the transgressive thing to do, and so on and so on. So it comes afterwards that you start to enjoy it. It's the same with drinking, if not wine, at least the hard liquors. I mean, they have a bitter taste, they burn. So when you have a slightly dissolute father who tells you when you are six, seven, be a man, try. <laughs> <laughs> it's a favor to your father, it's not. Then you learn. Uh, it, uh, so again, it's, it, it's strictly, I claim our pleasure in this kind of things is strictly a second level pleasure. It has more to do with, uh, how should I put it, with with social group, with participating in a collective act of transgression or what. I mean, let's be frank here. If you want to drink for pure pleasure, you usually do some stupid fruit juice. You don't go to <laughs> And I claim, but I don't have time to develop in detail, that it goes the same even for sex. I can understand if you want pleasure, masturbate. It's much simpler and so on and so on. I claim that collective sex, in the sense of not origin, but <laughs> it's strictly something you have to learn. It's a learned experience. It doesn't come, it doesn't come naturally. Again, so you see my point, uh, which is that uh, violating the public rules is not done by a private ego, but is enjoined by the same public rules which allegedly prohibit this. This is what, this is what, uh, accounts for all the snobbery of an artistic taste. For example, me coming from snobbish Europe, if you like classical music, I do, and the, we know who are supposed to be the big guys, Beethoven, his symphonies, and so on. But if you are in the closed circle of those who pretend to know it, if you say, if you make one of the obvious choices, no, like, I like Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. You're considered a total idiot. <laughs> the trick is to select a work which is usually neglected or considered minimal and to say, eh, but this is the <laughs> And uh, if you know Beethoven, the field is getting pretty narrow there. When I was young, you could get away by opting a late string quarters. They are out now, too well known. Now you must go 
maybe because they are really the heart and boring, the late piano sonatas are one of the candidates and so on, if you like them. So the point is, again, that it's only this slight deviation from the common wisdom which accounts for you strictly being in. And I claim the same goes to Barrett. Uh, this idea of uh, marriage as fidelity is typical adolescent idea. Since I'm at the Catholic University, I would say the whole wisdom of a Catholic church is based on the idea of what that, that there is more than just the same, the same root in the two words adult and adultery. You become adult when you know how to practice adultery. <laughs> no, no, I mean, fortunately, literally, when, when you understand how, how, how to put it, the institution reproduces itself through its small transgressions, exemptions, and so on and so on. Let me give you the ultimate example. Did you see, to be ironic, of course, one of the greatest movies of Western civilization, The Sound of Music. <laughs> Look at it. It's a wonderful example of ideology. Uh, what's the true message of the movie? You know the story. Sister Maria sent to take care of the children of von Trapp family. Then she, okay, in the movie, Julie Andrews falls in love with Baron von Trapp, Christopher Plummer. Then he fa she falls in love too much, in a panic, being sexually attracted to the to the baron, she goes, you remember, that's the crucial scene of the film, okay? She goes to the mother superior and tells her, I'm still tempted by the baron, what should I do? It's a call to punishment, no? She asks, make me pray, make me fast, whatever. And then there is an incredible scene, uh, which is totally obscene. I'm always almost ashamed of watching it. Do you remember what happens there? The mother superior sings a song. <laughs> of seeing something starts like climb every mountain. <laughs> and the message of that song is go back, seduce the guy, screw like crazy. <laughs> and that's, you see, I think there is no subversive whatever here. This is how Catholicism functions. You know, like, uh, I say this in all respect, not to blame Catholicism, Protestants are even worse and so on. <laughs> like, you know, uh, the message is not obey and don't do it. That's the explicit message. The implicit message is obey, pay lip service, and then secretly you can have all that you want. Maybe even, sorry for the obscenity, as a priest, all the small boys, and so on and so on. And strictly mean, without any offense to Catholicism, I think it's a great thing that, that effectively there must be something of what I call an inherent transgression. The cases of pedophilia are so numerous that you cannot account for it in this simple way. Yes, of course, priests are humans like others, so we have them. No, they have too much of that. It's, 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 a, much more, uh, it's a much more complex thing. But again, what I wanted to emphasize is how, is how this is how religion works today. Even if you read some statements in most conservative Catholic countries, for example, recently I was in Poland, a very conservative, anti-Semitic country. It's very difficult to meet a Polish guy who is not a Jew and who is not anti-Semitic. But uh, nonetheless, uh, I, uh, I was shocked about how 
there are even Catholic fundamentalists relate to sexuality. On the one hand, they have the usual, the usual dogma, you know, only in marriage, blah, blah, blah. But then it was so clear that their real message to the young people was a much more obscene one. It was, look, in a permissive society where you just can do whatever you want, it gets boring. We offer you this thrilling additional pleasure of giving you rules which you are not only allowed, but secretly even solicited to, to of course, not publicly, to, to violate, and then this makes it for a much more thrilling sexual experience. A couple of times the priest even openly, even openly claims it, and incidentally, there is a truth in it, obviously. Like, what about the opposite position? Someone like Marquis de Chat brutally just enjoy. I mean, I hope you got it after reading, for example, his most mechanical, systematic work, work 120 days in, in, uh, in Sodom, I think, or Gomorrah, Sodom, yeah. That, uh, how, uh, you know, 600 cases of perversion, that after a certain number, I would say after 150, 200, it's totally desexualized, it becomes a pure formal logic permutation, like 430. You take a dog, an ox, a woman, two giants, and how they do it. Next example, you know, you take two dogs, two women, and whatever. It's totally desexualized. So, again, this complexity has to be taken uh, into account. Uh, where, but where are we today here? I claim today, this is more, I would say, a traditional ideology which you can locate at all levels. This, how should I call it, two-level ideology. The first thing we should say today is that it's often the opposite. If traditional ideology functions in this way that I found some traces of it there, but not only there, in Catholic ideology, and my analysis here is very abstract. Sorry, it, it appears that I want to focus on Catholicism. I can tell you that when communists were in power, were in power in my country, they were much worse in opening this hypocrisy. For example, the official ideology of ex-Yugoslavia was some kind of self-management, anti-Stalinist communism. But the point was that if you took the ruling ideology too seriously, if someone suspects you that you truly suspected you that you truly believed in it, well you usually lost your job. It was a very nice paradox, you know, of course. And this is why, if I may make another detour, this is why I like Ayn Rand, when people ask me, like, are you crazy or what? <laughs> I like ideologists who undermine the ruling ideology, not by subverting it from the outside, but through what I call over-identification, as it were, showing the cards too directly, too openly. That's why her status is very ambiguous and then, you know. She is liberal capitalist individualism at its purest, but she puts it so openly that she cannot become really the official ideology. She's an embarrassment. And guys like this are always the most interesting ones. Like in early, early modern Catholicism, it's the Jansenists in France, especially Blaise Pascal. This is why he was later in big trouble, excommunicated and so on. He, as it were, showed the cards in a too open way. So this is one strategy. That is to say, the explicit rule of law, regulation prohibits it, 
the message between the lines, do it discreetly, and so on. But we have also the opposite operation more and more today, where the explicit message is enjoy, have a nice life, and so on, and prohibitions are implicit. But that's another story. I don't have time to develop it, but I think it's crucial for understanding where we are today. I think the diagnosis of some conservative religious people that we don't believe and so on, I totally don't agree with it. I think we believe more than ever today. But what I want to say is that so that you will see how this multitude of levels function. To analyze the ideological investments of a statement you must precisely look at this obscene, implicit presuppositions. Let me give you a very pathetic example. Let's suppose you read one of these famous ads. I thought, I think it was even in today's US Today, which I read in my hotel. You know, the photo of three disfigured, with disfigured lips, black children, and then, you know, contribute some money, you can make a difference, you can save this child's life, and so on and so on. What happens if you, how to put it, if you ask yourself, but what is the true message of this message beneath the call for charity? I think in majority of cases and for the majority of us, something pretty cynical, something along the lines of, uh, I know that people are starving, living in horrible conditions around, but I don't care. And this ad is offering me a nice way out. I give the price of a couple of cappuccinos, and not only I can, net, not only I get rid of the problem, but I, I can also claim to see. I try to do something, and so on, and so on. The message is: for cheap money, we can, as it were, get rid, make you feel well, and so on, and so on. Uh, okay, how? Where are we today with regard to all these things? I claim that. More and more, the way ideology functions today is directly as anti-ideology. By this, I need as a reference to, uh, what should I call it? If there is an ideological statement today, it's something like, you know, none of us can be reduced just to some ideological category. None of us is simply a capitalist, a liberal, a Christian, an American. Beneath this, each of us is a warm, rich human being with a whole wealth of traumas, dreams, fears, and so on. That's what makes us real human beings. This idea that beneath public identity we are concrete, rich individuals which cannot be reduced to abstract categories. Why is this ideology? Because the way this functions today, I claim, is to precisely obfuscate the ideological-political consequences of what you are doing. Uh, let me take an example maybe known to some of you. The two recent Israeli films, and incidentally I'm not engaged here in Israel bashing and so on. It's a much more complex situation in the Middle East. But uh, the two films about Lebanon war, Ari Folman's animated documentary Waltz with Bashir and the more recent Samuel Maoz's Lebanon. As you maybe know, Lebanon draws on the director's own memoirs as young soldiers, soldier, and the movie renders the wars fear and claustrophobia. <coughs> How most of the action is shot from within a tank. So 
the movie, as it were, abstracts from the enemies, what they are doing, and withdraw focus to the intimacy of war experience. I claim this is the ultimate, again, ideological gesture. All of a sudden, the political stakes of what goes on, why are we here, are we killing Palestinians, do we have the right to be here? And I'm not saying that the, the, the answer is necessarily no. I'm just saying that in this way, which appears to be the ultimate way, like forget ideologies, are you aware what horror war is? It's a wonderful way to precisely change something which is a large collective act with consequences, killing, political implications, all that matters suddenly become an intimate experience of fear and so on and so on. That's ideology at its purest. No wonder that in Israel, when I visited, and I often visit the country, I love it, but I encountered again and again this same strategy as part of how IDF, Israeli Defense Forces, legitimize their role. They, it's very interesting and it's very intelligent, I think, we are doing. They're not saying Arabs are cowards, we are super soldiers, one battalion of us can take over Cairo, whatever. No, they all the time claim, as they put it, uh, military is not in our genes. That is to say that we are people like others. We are also cowards, we can fall into a panic, we cry when there is shooting around us, and so on and so on. Uh, I was witness, not literally witness, but sorry, on TV there, a supreme example of this ideological manipulation where an Israeli special unit entered the apartment where the, an alleged terrorist's family lived, hoping to find the father. He was not there, but mother and children were there. So what happened is that, of course, the, mother, the children awakened when brutally soldiers entered and started to cry, and mother called her daughter by a name like, come here, then the name, so that I will uh, console you. And then one of the soldiers, Israeli soldiers, discovered, realized that his daughter's name is the same as that Palestinian girl's name. And you know what he did? He opened his wallet and, you see, I have also a daughter, the same name, we are all humans, and so on and so on. That's the lie embodied, I claim. Precisely this idea beneath differences, we are really all the same. If you want to see this ideology at its purest, I advise you to look at a film by Claude Lanzmann, you know, the famous French documentary author, not the one we all know, sure, but another one, Chappell about Israeli defense forces. But again, it all focuses, the entire movie is about this psychological dimension. No questioning of political consequences, just how did you feel in the Yom Kippur War when, when Egyptians uh, uh, crossed the Suez uh, Canal? And then you have all this description, I was crying, I was in a total panic. It's all one big, all one big, uh, all one big uh, psychology. And, uh, so that, where does here enter ideology? Uh, I cannot but respect, and I mean this without irony, the brutal honesty of the first generation founders of the state of Israel. How differently they were talking, all of them, that is to say, the early Moshe Dayan, uh, and so on, uh, from today's Israeli establishment. I mean, the way to, to 
to today's Israel, the weak points of their politics, is not to criticize them from some abstract position, but simply to remind them what their ancestors were. And not by ancestors, I don't mean the Bible, I mean simply two generations earlier, first generation Israeli politicians, they were aware of it. I mean, it's interestingly to read, uh, to read their statements where they clearly say, it's not a question of justice. We are here, we took somebody else's land, maybe we have some right, they also have the right, and it's simply a matter of work, who will take it? I like this attitude, it's at least honest, it openly says with none of this bullshit, uh, and I noticed this bullshit, the nicest example of Josephine Mekomem, and among atheist Israelis, this is a standard joke, is how, because do you know that Israel, this renders the country rather sympathetic for to me, you know that Israel is the most atheist country in the world. It's about 60%, they are atheists. But there, there Josephine Mekomem is, there is no God, but nonetheless God gave us the land of Israel. <laughs> okay, so look, a wonderful model of how honestly they put. On 29th of April 1956, a group of Palestinians from Gaza crossed the border to plunder the harvest in the Nahal Oz Kibbutz Fields, just across. Then there was Roy, a young Jewish member of the kibbutz who patrolled the fields. He tried to chase them away with a stick. He was seized by the Palestinians, carried back to the Gaza Strip, and when the next day the Palestinians gave the body to United Nations forces to return it to the Israel, his eyes had been plucked out. Moshe Dayan, then the chief of staff, delivered the eulogy at his funeral the following day. Listen to this carefully. Let us not cast blame on the murderers today. What claim do we have against their mortal hatred of us? They have lived in the refugee camps of Gaza for the past eight years, while right before their eyes we have transformed the land and villages where they and their ancestors once lived into our own inheritance. We have transformed. So you see the honesty. It's no bullshit. It's, we took the land from there, of course they hate us. Moshe Dayan says this. But now comes the mystery, the second paragraph. It is not among the Arabs of Gaza, but in our own midst that we must seek Roy's blood. How have we shut our eyes and refused to look squarely at our fate and see the destiny of our generation in all its brutality? Have we forgotten that this group of young people living in Nahal, Oz bears the burden of Gaza's gates on its shoulders. Obvious reference to Samson, the gates of Gaza, and so on. But what's so interesting here is that you see how Diane is reasoning. In the first paragraph, he openly admits that the Palestinians have at least some kind of right to hate the Israeli Jews since the Jews took their land. His conclusion, however, is not the obvious admission of one's own guilt, but to fully accept what he calls the destiny of our generation in all its brutality. That is to say, to assume the burden, not guilt, but burden of the war where might will be right, where the stronger will win. The war was not about principles of justice, it was precisely an exercise in what uh, Walter Benjamin called the mythic violence. I think if Israel were to return a little bit to this, not 
I'm not saying Israel should say in some stupid politically correct pro-Palestinian way, sorry that we exist, we move to Europe and so on. But <laughs> fundamentally, have to put it fully, admit the deadlock. That they don't have the right to simply play in the eyes of Palestinians, the good guy, things would have maybe changed. Okay, many things also have to change about the Palestinians. I totally agree. Consequently, I claim, <coughs> I will make now a crazy proposal. In the Israeli-Palestinian <coughs> conflict also, this old motto from the 1968, the walls of Paris, let's be realist, let's demand the impossible holds. If there is a lesson to be learned from the endlessly protracted Middle East negotiations, it is that, I claim, the main obstacle to peace is precisely what is offered as a realistic solution, the two separate states. Although none of the two sides really want this solution, Israel would probably prefer a little bit of West Bank that it is ready to seek to become a part of Jordan and the Palestinians also consider the pre-67 Israel part of their land. So first, let's be clear, nobody really wants the two states. But nonetheless, it is somehow accepted by all of us as the only feasible solution. What both sides exclude as an impossible dream is the simplest and most obvious solution. A binational secular state comprising all of Israel plus the occupied territories and Gaza. Now you will say, I know what you will say, I'm crazy utopian. It's a utopian dream disqualified by the long history of hatred and violence. Here I think I have a perfect answer. It's not utopia, it's a reality. Isn't de facto the reality of today's Israel and occupied territories that it de facto is a bi-national state. It is one state. Israel is de facto in control of it. Uh, it's controlled by one sovereign power, the state of Israel, which is then divided by internal borders. So that I claim the task should rather be to abolish the apartheid and transform all of it simply to accept it. It is one state. And I'm seriously advocating it. It may surprise you, but what was for a long time, a shocking idea is even accepted more and more by some still marginal parts there. You know why? Because this is the easiest solution even for the West Bank settlers. Nobody has to leave West Bank. That is just that you accept what is de facto, one big Israel as a reality, of course, with the proviso of, of making it de facto secular and so on and so on. Now we'll say it's still madness. Maybe it's it, but then I claim we will not have a solution. It's as simple as that. Okay, let me go on with this idea of humanist, no humanist, just this reduction to, but we are human as the form of ideology. Now I may, uh, uh, I may disappoint some of you, but I would like to begin with, uh, to give, to conclude with um, the opposite example, from today's Cuba. If you want to read one of the most uh, interesting detective writers today, it's Leonardo Padura Fuentes, a Cuban writer who does police procedurals set in today's Havana. His detective hero is an inspector, Mario Conde. And you know, the portrait of Cuba that you get is 
very realistic. I mean, it's not some idealized socialist Cuba. It's prostitution, poverty, the arrogance of ruling nomenclatura, and so on, even hunger, crime, prostitution. Again, so, so first I thought, oh my god, this guy must have a nice villa in the suburbs of Miami or whatever. Then I was surprised to learn that no, not only he lives in Havana, but he is no dissident there. He is the big star, recognized and so on. And then I got it. This is the, it's a kind of a zero level defense of today's Cuba. The message is, of course, revolution is screwed up. Of course, it's a misery. We are a lost generation. But nonetheless, and this has nothing to do with politics, it's simple ethical consistency, we must heroically accept what we are, not to escape into the dreams of Miami or whatever, but just with dignity to accept our reality, our love for this country, and to go on living here. I think it's a very desperate strategy, but much more effective than official propaganda. You see, this also is, for me, ideology. Now, a next more complex step. When I, what we get in this reduction of humans, not to ideological categories, but to concrete human beings, is, is this what Christians call the love of a neighbor? Does this mean, no, don't treat the other as some abstract category, communist, socialist, capitalist, imperialist, enemy, see in him or her the neighbor, a concrete human being. No, 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 it's much more uh, complex here. You know, in, if you know truly the Judeo-Christian tradition, you must know that neighbor is not a nice guy with whom we sympathize. Neighbor is rather like, did you see, uh, there is a movie and a novel which effectively can be called, subtitled into uh, The Becoming of a Neighbor. It's, I think, Stephen King's Shining. <laughs> a normal father becomes a neighbor by becoming this unfathomable monstrosity, and so on and so on. So, uh, so uh, uh, my point is that precisely because ideology is explicit ideology, is breaking down. We claim we live in post-ideological time, the only thing that matters is your be what you truly are and so on, authentic, uh, authentic, uh, uh, authentic life that you should live. That the fear of the neighbor is explosively growing. How does this function? Let me give you an example which, if some of you were in yesterday's debate, I already mentioned it, but I think I should repeat it because it's crucial. Uh, uh, one, a little bit more than one year ago, I was at Harvard with a friend of mine from Slovenia, Mladen Dolar, and at a dinner after our presentations, we had uh, some eight, nine people, we didn't know each other, so an old professor who invited us said, okay, each of you should present himself. Please state your name, affiliation, field of work, and your sexual orientation. Okay, for my European sensibility, this was a little bit stupid. No, like, it's none of your business. But what I'm saying here, now comes the point, is that I'm far from engaged here in the usual America passion, you know? No, 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 you have your levels where you are more coming out open than us. We have our own. My first association was, but wait a minute, what happened when half a year ago uh, a friend of mine from the United States visited me and 
other Slovene friends in Slovenia. We went to the Adriatic coast to, to, on a beach, and in Slovenia, as it's in most of the Mediterranean countries now, already for 30 years, topless is the standard of the boutique. Nobody even notices it if you see women's breasts all around. But this was extremely offensive for the American friend. We all saw, he saw, oh my God, another breast, another breast. <laughs> so, you see, the point is that it's not that we are more civilized or whatever. The point is that each, each culture, and it's a complex reason for why, how does it function, why? For you, it's not a problem to publicly admit up to a point, I know your sex orientation, but much more difficult for women to walk topless with us, nobody even notices it, but, and so on and so on. But what I claim is that precisely what my American friend feared is precisely this is the fear of the neighbor. This desiring other of songs which in a way uh, invades your embarrassingly stupid that narrative usually is. For example, I'm still now traumatized, even thinking. One of the standard formulas was, you know, the housewife is alone at home, a plumberer comes and says, maybe I fixed the hole in the kitchen, and then maybe says, but I have another hole, can you also <laughs> What's the lesson here? I think it's censorship. What is prohibited, to put it very simply, is to have explicit hardcore, see it all, and at the same time, and let's call it naively, emotionally engaging, serious story. It's as if it would have been too much. You either have a serious story, but then you don't see it all, or you see it all, but then the story must be ridiculous. It's precisely, you know, if you see it all, this subjective engagement must be urged. Censor, which is why, incidentally, I know that in France, for example, uh, Catherine Breillat and some others try to do, let's call them seriously artistic hardcore, like if you saw maybe her movie Romance. You see everything in sex, but at the same time engaging story. But that's why she cannot make a, a real breakthrough. That's why she remains uh, marginal. Now, of course, I know this is no longer the case today. But my thesis is that today it's even worse. Today, today the predominant, so I was informed, not that I hate hardcore, but it's simply too depressive to watch it. It's like a shortcut to impotence, I claim. Today, I do notice it if you watch it, it's so-called gonzom, which is uh, a form of pornography where they no longer even pretend that it's a story. A couple does it, or three, four, whatever, I don't want to limit myself to a couple because then I will be accused of binary logic. <laughs> and then, you know, they engage in a debate with the director, with the cameraman, am I good, you know, like to make it fun. I claim that censorship is here even more radical. It's even, it's as if they are in such a panic that even, even this minimal of narrative is felt as if it's too much, you have to be reminded all the Can you imagine what terrible sense of this is? You have to be reminded all the time, no, it's just a joke, we are just filming, and so on, and so on, and so on. It's very interesting, this phenomenon. 
the fear is precisely the fear of the neighbor, I claim. Because if you, if in this stupid copulation that you see there, if you were to, to fear that there is real desire, passion, emotion there, that would have been the neighbor. That dimension has to be, uh, uh, has to be suppressed. So again, the problem is how to maintain the distance towards a neighbor. Here, I claim we are approaching a dangerous state, because uh, in the sense that one of the ways to keep the neighbor as a distance, the neighbor in his, her intruding proximity are customs, habits, or rules of civility, and so on, and so on. But in our culture of self-exposure and so-called sincerity, authenticity, they function less and less. And incidentally, one of the signs of this failure is for me politically correct attempt to directly regulate things. You know what's my problem with political correctness? Let's say how you treat the other in this sexual interaction, if we are talking about politically correct uh, uh, beyond sexuality. Of course, I agree with all they say. But what I'm saying is that, uh, how to put it, it works only if it's part of our, how to put it, spontaneous customs. The moment you explicitly regulate it, you undermine it in a way you even, in an immediate way, support, sustain uh, aggressivity. Something is missing in this politically correct universe where you try to regulate, to explicitly uh, posit norms, regulate it, and so on and so on. So the result is, now unfortunately, this is no longer a joke, the result is clear in one of the most depressive movies that I've seen. It isn't yet released. A friend of mine from Denmark gave me a copy. It's a, you should see when it will come out. It's a documentary called Free Man, When Killers Make Movies, uh, produced by Final Cut Film Production from Denmark, Copenhagen. This documentary is shot in Medan, Indonesia, in 2007. It reports on a case of obscenity which reaches the extreme. You know, you know history that in, uh, in uh, 1966, there was a very tense situation in Indonesia. Uh, President Sukarno oscillating between communists and right-wingers. The communists tried coup d'etat, the right immediately strike back, and then there was one of the most terrible ethnic political cleansings. Around two and a half million Chinese were slaughtered, mostly under the pretext that there were suspected communists and so on and so on. So uh, this, move, this documentary portrays today's careers of some of the key organizers of that ethnic slaughter, who are nightmarish, brutal people. Now, today, they are, of course, senators, businessmen, whatever you want. Now comes the really depressing, terrible thing. They don't uh, hide anything. They publicly boast about it and uh, with pleasure, obvious pleasure, really next. so depressive about this movie. For example, one of their main guys explains to the journalist who interviews him that it took them a couple of weeks to discover which is the most, the most efficient and 
pleasurable way to rape a woman and at the same time kill her. Now that you need uh, somebody to help you who puts a wire around her head, I'm not going to details. But now comes the horror. Not only is there no shame, but they do this in front of TV, in front of TV, namely, after a documentary about their life was done, uh, they appeared on a talk show in one of the big state TV channels in Indonesia. And I couldn't believe that conversation. Like, the guy explains how to rape a woman, blah, blah, and then the moderator says, what a wonderful insight, a big round of applause for this gentleman, and so on. It's totally, it's totally nightmarish. What makes it even more nightmarish, but interesting, is that uh, they also report to the crucial answer to the crucial question, how were they able to do this? Their answer is, but I'm not blaming Hollywood, don't be American movies. They, while they were torturing, killing, and so on, they even dressed as and copied their idea, because they were all movie fans, they liked James Cagney, Humphrey Bogart, those gangster and film noir movies from late 30s, 40s, early 50s, and they acted, even dressed as those heroes. And they imagined themselves as those heroes in, in action. That's always, I claim, the crucial point, to, to see, how to put it, to look at the, uh, to analyze which fantasy, which phantasmatic screen made it possible for guys like this to do what they were doing. So, of course, the question to ask here is, what kind of society are we living in where even the minimal public shame is suspended? You know, the Nazis at least claimed, no, we didn't do it, denied it, and you have the famous statement by Heinrich Himmler that uh, the Holocaust killing the Jews will be the most glorious chapter of German history, but a chapter which unfortunately will never be written, but we have to keep it secret. Here it's not even that. They publicly boast about it. The crucial thing here, I claim, is that we should avoid two traps. First, the cheap America version, yeah, yeah, we see Hollywood, the, it was the influence, absolutely no, but also not the opposite mistake, which would be uh, a more even racist one, yes, those primitive Indonesians, and so on and so on. I think we approach here a much more difficult question of, first, the, let's call them in this learned term, dislocating effects of capitalist globalization. What kind of moral vacuum is created by today's global trends? Because things like this are not happening only uh, are not happening only in uh, only in only there only in uh, Indonesia. They're happening all around this gradual, how should I put it, uh, growing obscenity, shamelessness of uh, of shamelessness of uh, of uh, power of power and so on and so on. So uh, if you uh, Allow me to go on with uh, another point. This is why, faced with this, let's call it, shamelessness of power, maybe we who want to be the left today, I have here uh, uh, a very obscene proposition, but I mean it very seriously, maybe the time has come when we, if 
we want to be still, I want to be a radical left, we should no longer play that role from the 68, you know, imagine the enemy as somebody uptight, conservative, with dignity, and we think we do something liberating if we, I don't know, talk dirty prov provocations and so on. Unfortunately, the power is turning more and more obscene, so maybe things like civility, decency, so maybe we should take it over. Yeah. I will give you an example which maybe will hurt some of you. But the only guy who will appear in India is as usual me. I'm at least honest here. Uh, do you remember, maybe some of you do, how... Do you remember a couple of years ago, I think even 93, there was in a new museum of contemporary art in New York City, there was the, the retrospective and Andres Serrano, works 1983-93. There, a photograph, Peace Christ, caused a scandal, it depicts a crucifix immersed in urine, and then there was even a congressional debate, and so on and so on. Predictably, some left liberals defended this painting. Here is how they did it in New York Times. I quote it, literally. Like Robert Mapplethorpe, Mr. Serrano struggles against inhibitions about the human body. His use of bodily fluids is not intended to arouse disgust, but to challenge the notion of disgust where the human body is concerned. It is possible to see Mr. Serrano's use of bodily fluids as pure provocation, but you can also believe that Mr. Serrano views them as a form of purification. The fluids make us look as the, at the images harder and consider basic religious doctrine about matter and spirit." End of quote. The problem for me with this defense is that it works all too well. Its logic covers almost everything. Here comes, I warn you, this is obscene. Here comes my provocation. Let us say I, me, I were to publish a video clip depicting in detail how I shit how the anal hole gradually gets wider, then the sausage falls out, <laughs> while also showing the stupidly satisfied, relaxed expression of my face when the shit falls out. Then you told me, how can you do this vulgarity? Then here is what I will say. Quote, Mr. Zizek struggles against the inhibitions about <laughs> His use of bodily excrement is not intended to arouse disgust, but to challenge the notion of disgust where human body is concerned. It is possible to see Mr. Zizek's use of bodily excrement as pure provocation. But you can also believe that Mr. Zizek views them as a form of purification. The body gets purified by ejecting excrements. The excrements make us look at the images harder and consider basic religious doctrine about matter and spirit and so on. <laughs> you see my point, it works. So I'm not against very radical artistic provocations. I'm just saying they must really work. You know, like, it doesn't just work, work if you say, oh, let's provoke and so on. Those in power are provoking us enough. We get enough provocations from them. Now this finally brings us to the big question you are probably waiting me to address, the question of violence. The, the great ideological divide between liberal and radical left 
concerns the use of so-called illegitimate violence. The radical leftist answer was developed, among others, by Bertolt Brecht, who, in his short text, The Intellectual Beast is Dangerous, writes a quote from Brecht. A beast is something strong, terrible, devastating. The world emits a barbarous sound. But wait a minute. Does he mean this critically? No, because then the text goes on. The key question, in fact, is this. How can we become beasts? Beasts in such a sense that the fascists will fear for their domination. We have to understand that goodness must also be able to injure, to injure savagely. And I think that Brecht, far from being a kind of a proto-totalitarian, is here at his most Christian. He is basically taking over those lines from the Bible, which I, of course, appreciate more. You know, all those theories of Jesus saying, I don't bring, uh, I don't bring love, I bring sword, I bring devastation. If you don't hate your mother and father, you cannot be my follower. If you don't have a sword, buy everything you have, buy, uh, sell everything you have, buy a sword, and so on and so on. How to read this in conjunction? with his uh, love your neighbor, and so on and so on. I claim that we need, this is what in Christianity we call work of love. Work of love has to include some kind of violence. The whole point is what kind of violence. I would like to begin by the most elementary levels of insights. My good friend Alain Badiou, recently being accused of using insights, insults, wrote something wonderful in a letter to Le Monde, I think. Here is the quote from Alain Badiou. What characterizes politics, even if capital or parliamentarism enforces its domination up to making us forget it, is that, in politics, there are enemies. And why, for devil's sake, if they are true enemies, should it be prohibited for me to insult them, to compare them to vultures, jackals, bulls, headless linnets, and even to rats? to vipers, fat or not, up to hyenas, literate or not. End of quote. Why do I agree with him? Because I think that the liberal prohibition of enemies, you know, oh, yeah, there are no enemies, there are just competitors, and so on, has a very precise implication. If there are no true enemies, if there is no true struggle in politics, this means that those who really disagree with us are not simply our enemies, but are excluded from the very scope of humanity, so anything goes against them. Paradoxically, the first step in recognizing the very humanity of the enemy should be to fully accept the unavoidability of taking sides in politics. It is then for us. There is no third place above the struggle. For example, in 2008, Hugo Chavez, and I'm deeply critical of him, I think, is a failure already. Not external failure, but in, in itself, in his project, a failure. But nonetheless, I remember how in 2008, he was, Chavez in Venezuela, was accused of subordinating the judicial sphere to his executive power, of depriving courts of their independence. But the first thing one should ask upon hearing this accusation is, but which was the state of the judicial system Chavez was intervening into. Who dominated it politically? Was this system really a model of democratic neutrality? 
Dit is de tijd, hij gek zijn, lekker in het security frames in Venezuela. Gedoord nu, is Charles Scorribel, die trainer, die constitutional court. Hij asked them, oké, okay, what was the structure before? They admitted it was just another group, extremely partial, even worse than what Chavez is doing today. Then they added, but it should have been done in a democratic way. Well, why didn't they do it? I think, you know, sometimes here you have to make hard choices. And effectively, that's the brutal logic of politics. Uh, sometimes, how to put it, evoking democracy in such moments effectively means condoning the previous, much worse, injustice. This is what I'm tempted to call the parallax lesson of terror. This parallax was rendered perfectly. Now you will say, but this is my European Jacobin perversity. No, no, it's one of you, of your, your authors, who put it in wonderful terms. None other than Mark Twain. Listen to these wonderful lines from Mark Twain's uh, Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. He's, of course, told, uh, answering to the criticism of those who rejected the Jacobin terror as horror and so on. Quote, it's one of yours, not European decadence. <laughs> there were two reigns of terror if we would remember it and consider it. The one wrought in hot passion, the other in heartless cold blood. One shudders, our shudders are all for the horrors of the minor terror, the momentary terror, so to speak. Whereas, what is the horror of swift death by the ex compared with lifelong death from hunger, cold, insult, cruelty, cruelty and heartbreak? A city cemetery could contain the coffins filled by the brief terror, which we have all been so diligently taught to shiver at and mourn over. But all France could hardly contain the coffins filled by that older and real terror that unspeakably bitter and awful terror which none of us have been taught to see in its vastness or pity as it deserves. End of quote. So, if one deplores the Jacobin terror, one, if one does only that, one thereby says yes to that older and real, real terror. So that's the first thing I'm tempted to emphasize here. It's not a question, I hope you got it, it's not the question that I am advocating Jacobin terror, although de facto I am. <laughs> but it's another story. No, no, if you know, let me give you my main reason, which may be weird to you, artistic. Uh, you know which is the painting of French Revolution. I hope you, most of us, know it. The famous Jean-Louis David painting, The Death of Marat. Did you notice the strange nature of that painting. It's, let's say this is the painting, the lower third, you have the bathtub, the dead Marat, and then the upper two thirds, you remember what they are? Nothing, just nothing. It's, it's as if he, he precisely avoided that easy justification. How would this same painting be done let's say, in a really totalitarian regime. We would have the dead Marat, but instead of seeing this darkness, it would have been filled probably, let's say, by a dream of the dying Marat. Happy French people dancing when the revolution will win. You don't find that there. It's a wonderful painting. Marat is almost squeezed, squeezed into this 
squeezed into the frame. And I claim, and I uh, agree here with Clark, the first one art historian who emphasized this, it's as it were, as if this is the first step towards later Malevich, or sorry, black square start, and so on and so on. I mean, it's a, it's a tremendous painting. So, okay, I'm trying to take, not to mention more, uh, more, uh, more obvious things like that. You know, stop with terror of the French Revolution. Look at the statistics. In those couple of months of terror, less people were killed than just in a couple of weeks after the terminal took over. The problem is just that the Jacobins chopped off a couple of high heads, stink and so on. While hundreds were instantly killed afterwards, who cares? They were nobody's, nobody noticed it. Now I will make a step further, maybe even more problematic uh, for you. What we should question here is a certain way of so-called anti-totalitarianism, which I find problematic. <laughs> and I will try to explain why. I would like to take as the starting point the liberal enthusiasm for the so-called third wave phenomenon. Maybe you remember it. I am, I am, uh, I am here, uh, I am here uh, referring to uh, an event, I think it was in some uh, California high school in the 60s, where, you know, it's the old story. A professor wanted to teach his, sorry, his students how was Nazism possible. So he told them, let's organize, let's organize a, a let's organize a, 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 a society, uh, the, let's organize a movement called the Third Wave. The professor told his students that the motto of this movement will be strength through discipline, strength through community, strength through action, strength through pride. He disciplined them and so on and so on. And then he himself was shocked at how students, okay, pupils, this was high school, tried, started to collaborate. They even without him asking his pupils, they even started to denounce to him some of others, you know, they don't really follow the rules and so on and so on. So he was so shocked that after four days, he convoked a meeting and told them, listen, this was all an experiment, it's a fake. I hope you now understand how easily it was to seduce people to become totalitarian. And then, of course, with liberals, you get a multiple orgasm. You see how the beast is moment we can become. Uh, I totally reject this reading. I think that this experiment was deeply mystifying. And okay, I will not go into the detail. If you want the detailed analysis, read my next book. But my answer is simply this one. What is false in this experiment is that it opposes directly the so-called liberal, peaceful, tolerant openness and the universe of discipline, strength, action, and so on and so on. All that differs from liberalism into that group. Sorry, what I'm tempted to say is that I can well imagine a movement which requires discipline, pride, uh, strength through community, action, and so on, and which I would totally support. My God, all radical emancipatory movements also function like that. I can imagine a radical emancipatory movement which says, yes, strength through discipline. Why? My God, because 
Imagine a poor country, because we are poor. We don't have arms, the only thing we have is our discipline, our unity, and so on and so on. The trick of this operation is precisely that it throws all of it together. Emancipatory discipline is ultimately the same as the right-wing fascism, they are all the same, and so on and so on. What I, what I claim is that the crucial distinction is blurred here. We sometimes we need discipline, we need sacrifice, and so on. We shouldn't leave all these categories to the enemy. It's my God, if you listen to some of the radical, even left liberals, it is as if if you say, my God, comrades, discipline, we need order, oh, proto-fascist, proto-totalitarian, and so on. No, I don't buy this. But don't misunderstand me here. This doesn't mean I am advocating a new fascism or whatever. What I'm advocating is something much more, and even with violence, I'm very careful. I would say, if you allow me just to conclude very briefly now, I would say one thing here. When I talk about violence, I'm not talking about act so much active violence in the sense of killing, whatever. Okay, sometimes that is needed, but I'm the first to concede it should be used purely in, or at least predominantly in defensive terms. I'm saying two much more precise things. First, that violence should be much more, let's call it an interactive violence, a violence of stopping when the situation is unbearable, a violence of non-participating. In this sense, I answer to that stupid politics against me in the New Republic and I will develop in my future book how. Yes, violence, but violence in the sense in which, as I wrote to provoke my enemies, in which the problem with Hitler was that he was not violent enough. In what sense? Then I go on. In the sense in which Gandhi was more violent than Hitler. In what sense? Hitler's violence was pure violence of impotence. He killed millions because he didn't dare to change a little bit capitalist relations or whatever. It was clearly a violence, how should I put it, he was doing all possible things so that nothing would really change. Well, whatever you think about Gandhi, he really wanted to interrupt, stop the functioning of the British state in India. So this is my first point. My second point, the first violence should be directed against ourselves. By this, no, no, I don't mean any. Uh, masochist whipping to render us saints or whatever, but a very painful process of, how should I put it, uh, violently breaking with or getting rid, liberating ourselves from the dreams which are not our dreams, how should I put it. You know, the problem, the true problem as if there is a lesson to be learned from 20th century revolutions, which is why I'm the first to admit they were a total catastrophe, maybe the greatest tragedy in humanity, the total fiasco of the, of the communist led, which ended in Stalinism and then in the later decadence and so on and so on. We should learn from this total ethical, political, economic and so on catastrophe. The first lesson is that, uh, as Hegel knew it, the German idealist, uh, it's not enough to overthrow the enemy. First, you must overthrow the hold the enemy has over your dreams, as it were. You must not, to put it pathetically, dream dreams which are not really 
yours. Uh, just one example here, a wonderful novel from a writer from the ex-communist country, the Albanian writer Ismail Kadare. I advise you to read it, it's a very, very interesting, a wonderful short novel called The Palace of Dreams. It's a story of Tabir Sarai, the palace of dreams in the capital of an unnamed vast 19th century Balkan empire, basically Turkey, modeled on Turkey. It's a crazy story, the idea is this one. In this great society, sorry, in this great palace, thousands of bureaucrats collect dreams from the entire population and interpret them, and then try to isolate the central dream to give it to the, to the sultan as providing the key to the future of the country. The reason for this palace and for all the struggles among different factions about which dream will be privileged as the, as the master dream is nicely spelled out in the novel. In my, now I quote a short passage from the novel. In my opinion, Kurt went on, Kurt is one of the heroes of the novel, it is the only organization in the state, this Palace of Dreams, where the darker side of its subject's consciousness enters into direct contact with the state itself. The masses don't rule, of course, but they do possess mechanisms through which they influence all the state's affairs, including its crimes. And that mechanism is the Palace of Dreams. Do you mean to say, as is the custom, that the masses are to a certain extent responsible for everything that happens, and so should to a certain extent feel guilty about it, yes, said Kurt, and so on, and so on. That's crucial, how every power always reproduces itself through, let's call it, ideological dreams, fantasies, which, by means of which subjects themselves are, in a way, invested into the structure of power. And the first, state of, the first step of liberation is to get rid of this hope. Let me take the extreme example. If some of you know Russian literature, you will know what I'm talking about in even short myths. Stalinism at its worst, but it's shocking if you read the biographies even of great dissidents, Mandelstam, uh, Shostakovich, half dissident, okay, uh, uh, Pasternak, and so on, how they were all incredibly fascinated by Stalin, as if with all their terrible experiences, they incredibly wanted to meet, you know the tragic story when Stalin called Pasternak, asking him after Mandelstam was arrested, are you a friend of Mandelstam? Mandelstam, what should we do with him? And Pasternak tried to squeeze out, I don't know, then Stalin said, tell me, we should talk. Then Pasternak says, yes, I would like to talk about you, about death and life, the meaning of life, and Stalin cut it, and so on. The same with Mandelstam, the same with Bulgakov, and so on. They, they all, at the level of dreams, were invested in. And again, the first step of liberation, which, of course, is not physically violent, but it is to do this, to, how should I put it, to change your dreams to change your dreams, as it were. Which is why, incidentally, I like the movie, uh, which some people think is proto-fascist, I think it's not. It's one of the greatest Hollywood movies, uh, Fight Club. I don't think it's a proto-fascist film. I think it's, the lesson is precisely this. Before you beat others, you must beat yourself. In the sense of, 
beating out of you all that fantasmatic content which, by means of which you are invested libidinally into power, which is why one of the ultimate shots from Hollywood is for me, you remember that scene when uh, Ed Norton confronting his boss starts to beat himself. <laughs> this is the first step of liberation. It's much more horrible than because, you get my point, if you were to attack the boss directly, it would have meant, screw you, I want to be boss. By beating himself, he ruins the entire field. My last point, really the last point. Uh, here, maybe just to conclude, I would like to make one point clear so that you will not accuse me of being confused. I used, I'm well aware that I used the term violence in an indistinct way. I did my homework. I'm well aware of these nice distinctions drawn among others by Kana Arendt between power, authority, and violence. Power being, let's call it the national authority, the charisma that some people have. Authority is always a social relation. Often you don't have to have a personal charisma to have authority. You know all these stories of somebody is a jerk, an idiot, once you see he has a crown of its authority. And violence, I hear Hannah Arendt does something intelligent. He opposes violence and power. For them, as he puts it, for her, as he puts it in wonderful, wonderfully precise terms, violence is ineffective in the sense that it's always a sign of impotence. Violence is the resort of those who precisely don't have power, which is why a power which has to resort to direct violence is a power which is already in fact. This may sound strange to you, but if you read memoirs of how they perceived its rule, Hitler, Stalin, and so on, they were all the time in total panic. That's why, again, they had to be uh, continuously, uh, uh, continuously violent. But at some, so this is incidentally true even at the level of personal authority. Let's take the traditional figure of the father. I hope you get it, or I hope this is also your experience, at least it's mine, that a father who actually beats you, it may hurt. But it's a ridiculous, ultimately impotent figure. With a true father, with authority, violence is purely virtual. You know, just uh, looks at you, no? The moment he has to act out, take recourse to real violence, it's an admission of the thing. Okay, but where I would nonetheless disagree with Aaron is that the whole point is precisely that there is always a level of, how should I put it, indistinction between violence and power, a structurally necessary breakdown of their distinction. There has to be a threat of violence behind power, and the way the po a power, every power, retains its authority is precisely through obfuscating the violence on which it is uh, on which it is based. And with this, I conclude, I claim that the first step, and this is my point of violence, I'm not my God advocating violence, I'm just saying that the first step of politicization is uh, 
to see violence there where we do not even perceive it, even perceive it. So when we have today terrorist violence, 